The reading for today's sermon comes from Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. Hear the word of the living God. So when they had come together, they asked him, that is Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we thank you for your word, the Bible, and for its richness, its truth. We thank you that you direct our life as a church even as you direct the lives of men and women and nations through your word. And we pray that we would hear your voice today and be ready to be reshaped accordingly. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat and let me add my welcome to those of you who are here visiting today. It's especially a privilege to have some members of the Bradford family, extended family with us. It's a wonderful pleasure to see you again in some cases. And uh, I think some of you are here for the first time, but be that as it may, wonderful to have you with us. In the last couple of months, we have had the privilege of witnessing the launch of what I think is perhaps the most exciting initiative that's taken at All Saints, taken place at All Saints uh, in recent years. I'm referring, of course, to the exploration of a possible church plant in Granbury, just down the road. Pastor Neil, as you know, has been taking the lead and looking at various aspects of this venture and working very hard to figure out uh, what it would involve, and so on and so forth, including a series of exploratory meetings, two down so far, more planned, and so on. And I want to explain to you why I'm so excited about it, and why I think it's so significant for us as a church. The reason is that in God's providence, this presents us with a new opportunity to reflect in our life as a congregation a central feature of what Scripture says the church is for. The church as a community is called, among other things, to reach outward, to look beyond its boundaries, to try to find new ways of meeting new people and new communities, to reach new people with the gospel from all walks of life, whether they're unbelievers who don't know the Bible as two testaments and never heard of Jesus, or whether it's lapsed Christians Many of us know that experience, actually, of having professed faith in the past, and that faith has dwindled. Those people need to hear the gospel afresh as well. Wandering or drifting Christians, people who are more like the prodigal son than the lost sheep, or wounded sheep, Christians who've been hurt in the past and need reassurance that the church is still here for them. All these people and many more besides, we are called to reach outward to them, that's the task that Scripture sets before us. In a sense, that the church has to look in two directions at once. Well, three directions if you count upwards. But inward, we need to look at ourselves. Part of the task of the church is to build a, a culture within our walls, to grow in maturity. Becoming a Christian is not the end, it is the beginning. 
of a, the task for all of us to keep growing in maturity, but at the same time, we need to look outward beyond our walls as opportunity allows to welcome new communities, to meet new people and so on. And I'm thrilled that we have this opportunity in Granbury, in God's providence, a little cluster of people who already live down there and all the work that Pastor Neil has been doing and others have been doing. In fact, this outward focus is found throughout Scripture, lest you should imagine it's just a bee in this particular pastor's bonnet or just a New Testament thang. It is right there in Genesis chapter 1 when God said to Adam, fill and subdue the earth. Adam and Eve, of course, when in, he said to Abraham, you will be the father of many nations in Genesis 17. In Genesis 12, he's already said in you, all the families of the earth will found, find blessing. Think in the days of Moses in Exodus 19. When Israel is called the Lord's treasured possession, and you might think, oh yeah, of course, because they've just got to look inwards and look after themselves. And then you discover in uh, chapter 19, verse 5, that the reason why Israel is called is not just for their own sake, but as a means to reach the whole earth. For all the earth is mine, says the Lord. That's why you're my treasured possession, to reach them. Psalm 2, the coronation psalm, likely composed for the coronation of great King David. Ask of me, says the Lord. Here's what you should pray for. Ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance. That's what you should be praying for, O king. The end of the earth, your possession. Ring any bells? Acts 1.8, end of the earth. Same thing in Psalm 72, which is composed either by or for Solomon, perhaps both. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the end of the earth. It was never the intention of God at any point in history that his grace should be confined. But always it was his intention that we should reach out. Of course, what's happened as history has progressed is there has come something of a transition, a contrast even, you might say, between older covenants and the new covenant. Under the older covenants... The nations were required to come to Israel, at least at some level and for some purposes. So there is a geographic movement and they're supposed to come inwards. Of course, they're going to take the message back with them when they go. But Israel, it's quite rare that Israel is actually sent outwards under the older covenants. Jonah is the, the exception we all think of, Pastor Shaw's sermons recently. But in, for example, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he will teach us his ways and we'll walk in his path. So that's how it's supposed to be. Under the older covenants, the nations come in to Israel, but under the new covenant, it's different. Instead of the people coming in, the people of God are called to go out. Go and disciple the nations, Jesus says. Or in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this text that we looked at last week as well, picking up some other aspects of it, you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, we have good reason, I want to submit to you, to be very excited about this church plant in Granbury, which is our little latest providential opportunity to reach out even to Granbury. That was supposed to be a joke. If, if two-thirds of you weren't from Granbury, you might have laughed. Listen, I come from that barbarian island in the North Sea, okay? I've got... The gospel has reached me, it can sure as heck reach Texas. Now, one of the things that is important to emphasize here is uh, this call to go outwards has always been hard for the people of God to wrestle with. It's never been easy to hear this. It's not always been easy to understand it. There's an intellectual challenge at one level and a practical challenge, like how did it, but there's also an emotional challenge to this imperative to reach outwards beyond our walls. 
And it was certainly hard, it seems, for the original disciples at all these different levels. Intellectually, they didn't quite grasp it, and perhaps in other ways too. You remember this in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when they came together after the end of this 40-day period of teaching and fellowship, hearing about the kingdom of God, they're expecting the new age finally, climactically to dawn. And they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Innocent-sounding question, but in fact one that embodies two misunderstandings. You remember last week, We looked at the misunderstanding about the timing. Will you at this time? And the answer is, well, kind of yes and no. This is where it begins, but it's actually going to carry on for many, many generations. The Lord needs a thousand generations to show mercy to his people. It's not going to happen all at once. It will be gradual as the gospel spreads throughout the world. That's the first mistake they'd made, and we looked at that last week. But there's also another mistake that this question embodies. Look closely at verse 8, if you would, please, because it's such a significant, sorry, uh, verse 6, such a significant phrase they use. Will you at this time, and what is it precisely that they thought Jesus was going to do? Restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, it's worth thinking about what exactly they meant by this. It's clear that they were anticipating something like a restoration, hence restore, of the monarchy that they already knew about in Israel. Will you at this time restore the Davidic kingship? Will you at this time restore the monarchy? Will great David's greater son finally reign on Israel's throne? Will we go back to the good old days when David's son Solomon, or perhaps one who's greater than Solomon, does that remind you of anybody? Jesus? Maybe Jesus, the one who's greater than Solomon, will sit on Israel's throne and once again Israel will be set apart from the nations and all the nations will stream to Israel come to Jerusalem to find the Messiah, the king, who's enthroned on Zion. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus is like, well, not exactly. (laughs) Not exactly. In the words of one of the the 50 greatest quotes from Pastor Shaw yet to be preached from this pulpit, make Israel great again is a very poor substitute for the Pentecostal plan of God. What Jesus has in mind is something grander, bigger, more extensive. His plan is that he should not simply be king of Israel and welcome all nations to come to Israel, but that he should be king of the whole earth and that his disciples should go out and be witnesses to the nations. Which would have come as one heck of a shock. You can imagine, I mean, the disciples, it's hard not to sympathize with them, right? We have a version of their desire today, don't we? Jesus, wouldn't it be awesome? Like, you could be king in Israel. We'll rebuild the palace for you. It'd be really nice. And we've got the temple right next door. It's perfect. And like, you can be in the throne room and we can all sort of work in the palace and I could be the gardener and Peter could be the electrician and James could do the kind of maintenance and stuff. It'd be great, just us and like, just like, like the God old days, King David and all, Queen of Sheba, whoever her successor is will come. It's like a big party and celebrate. And then you can go away and leave us alone and it'd be nice and our kids can grow up together. Your daughter can marry my son and it'd be lovely. Jesus is like, mm, nah, I need you to go and be witnesses. I need you to go outwards. I need to disrupt. I'm planning to disrupt what might easily have become quite a comfortable social situation for you all because you're going to be my witnesses to all nations. So let me take these two themes one at a time. First, Jesus' kingship. Jesus' kingship is not merely established in Israel. The gospel, in one sense, is the announcement that Jesus is the new king of Israel who will also be the king of the whole earth. Verse 6. Will you at this time restore the kingdoms of Israel? 
It's not for you to know times and seasons that the Father has fixed. Remember the allusion to Daniel 7 and the kingship and the kingdom that's going to grow. We looked at that last week. You will be my witnesses. You'll receive power when the Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. We'll come to that in a moment. But then verse 9, here's the enthronement of the king. Verse 9. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, what are you looking up into heaven for? This Jesus who was taken from you up into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. In other words, they saw Jesus disappear in a cloud. Remember last week that I explained that what they're seeing is from below what Daniel in his vision saw from above in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel sees the enthronement of God's king. Daniel chapter 7. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one shall not be destroyed. It's not just king of Israel. All nations, all peoples, all languages everywhere will worship this king. And you've just seen his enthronement. It is an astonishingly significant moment. Actually quite often overlooked until it's kind of rediscovery in the last few decades of New Testament scholarship. The ascension is... They've just witnessed the enthronement of the king of heaven and earth. And it's vital to grasp the significance of this. Previously, when the king was enthroned, all the people would be invited to come from all the nations. Now that the king has been enthroned in heaven, not on earth, in heaven... He summons his own people to go out to all nations. Can you see the change? It is one of those big distinctions between older and new covenants. In fact, it's emphasized in all kinds of subtle ways here as a couple of um, moments. It's it's really interesting that verse 6, what's the first word that is spoken to Jesus by his disciples in the book of Acts? It's Lord, Greek kurios, sovereign, Ruler, master, the one who has dominion. And then that little phrase, I kind of tried to highlight it when I was reading. You notice in verse 10 and 11 how many times it says into heaven. See, it says four times. It's a little bit over the top. Expensive parchment, Luke. What are you wasting ink for? The answer is, of course, Jesus is the king of heaven and therefore over all four corners of the earth. It's a beautiful little touch to emphasize the expansive and uh, dramatic change that has now taken place in the relationship between the living God and every nation on earth. Jesus is now the king of all nations. Now, what that means is that there is a, an, a change to the extent and the content of what we proclaim. The extent, it's obvious. We don't restrict ourselves simply to those people in Jerusalem right there in the first century who happen to already know about Jesus. They're going to have to go outwards. But it's important also to grasp that this all nations element of the gospel has implications for the content of what the church is called to say. You see, if Jesus is the king of all nations, then he is the king of all the things that happen in those nations. And it's not just geography, we'll come to that in a second, but it's every different element of human life now falls under the reign of Jesus the King. A great um, Dutch statesman and theologian, Abraham Kuyper, uh, once captured this in 
what has become one of the most famous uh, reformed world and life taglines, and many of you will know what I'm about to say, when he said, quote, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, Lord, Master, sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. See what Jesus is saying? What Kuiper is saying that Jesus is saying? Um, Everything belongs to me. Every single thing that is done has to now be done in submission to Jesus Christ. Jesus has the right to dictate the moral content of everything. He is actually in charge of everything and everybody. He's not, we're not just here, in other words. This is, why it's, this is why planting this church in Granbury is going to be so difficult. Well, one of the reasons. There'll be lots of reasons. It's not just that our job is to try and save people from hell. I mean, that will be quite hard. that would be quite challenging, and it will be a wonderful, worthy mission to see new believers for the first time. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see people bowing the knee to Jesus for the first time? Somebody who'd never been brought to church when they were a kid, never really knew about Jesus, and you meet them somewhere in Granbury, and you bring them along to church, and they repent, and they believe, and they're baptized. That would be wonderful, to save souls from death and hell. But it's much more than that. You see, you've got to create a culture... The church's task is nothing less than the creation of a culture that is an entire way of life. All the network of different things that we do, all interlocking with each other, every element of which is done in submission to Jesus. The way that we conduct our relationships is to be done in submission to Jesus. The way that we go about our work is to be done in submission to Jesus. The way that we approach marriage and singleness is to be done in submission to Jesus. The way that we go about educating our kids is to be done in submission to Jesus. The way that we urge our civil rulers to formulate and enact their laws and our laws is to be done in submission to Jesus. The way we do politics and economics and international relations and science and everything else is to be done in submission to Jesus Christ because he's the king of heaven and earth. There's nothing that falls outside of his purview. That's what the ascension means. And so... Actually, it's one of the challenges that we're going to face. We're going to face. We're actually facing it here already, um, as as we're we're wanting as new people are joining us as a congregation. We want not just to welcome people to All Saints. Like, welcome to All Saints. It's great to have you with us. We want to try and grow together in our appreciation of a way of life in which the the, the shape of all of our behavior towards each other and our social instincts and the things that we value is. It's all oriented towards Christ. How we eat meals together. How we talk to each other. How we greet one another. How we dress. The expectations that we place upon young men in relating to young women who are not members of their family and to whom they're not married. All these things. The the challenge before us is not to say, great, welcome to all saints, chalk another family up to the membership roster, deacons, good job. It's like, well, welcome. And, and we want to try and grow together in our appreciation of everything that the Christian life is about. And the Christian life is about everything. Because Jesus is enthroned above all nations. Now, let me dig into a couple of details here, just because um, this may help to orient us for some of the things we're coming to later in the book of Acts. It may also help us just to think through these things today. There's two things I want to talk about. The first, I want to introduce you to a new term. It might be new. Um, to you. It might not be new if you're in the habit of reading people's PhD theses in theology, not mine. Um, I, I'm privileged to count as a friend and actually godfather of one of my children, a gentleman called Matthew Sleeman, who's a New Testament scholar. He's, he's one of the few people I know who's got two PhDs. He's also got the strongest neck muscles of every man I've, any man I've ever met. Like, 
hold of his planet-sized brain on his shoulders. He's, well, one of the things that he did for his second PhD was to investigate and to try and rediscover some neglected elements of the church's teaching about the significance of the ascension. And he coined this phrase, uh, salvation geography. Now, you're familiar perhaps with the phrase salvation history, yes? As history advances, things change. And you talk about the history of salvation, the story of Adam, Abraham, Israel, and so on. Well, Matthew wants to say, well... Um, there is a dramatic and significant geographical change that takes place with the coming of Christ and with his ascension particularly. So previously, the king's throne is in Jerusalem. Previously, the priestly temple is in Jerusalem. Previously, the prophetic word is spoken from Jerusalem with the implications that Israel is set apart from the nations. You've got laws and stuff which distinguish them from the nations. Part of the, uh, like, some of the laws that, that look really random, like let your hair grow long and um, don't mix two kinds of fabric in the same garment or crops in the same field. It's like, what's the point of that? The point is, among other things, simply to make you different, to set you apart, because this is where the king is. You need to look different and be different. But now the throne is in heaven, and it's one throne, one throne room in which priest, king, and prophet are all united. Now, don't blame Matthew Sleeman for this. This is me riffing off him. He's like, think of, think of jazz illustration. He's playing the piano. I'm having a crack at a saxophone solo. But I, I'm pretty sure that this is where he's going with this. The point is fairly obvious, that the ascension is, of course, connected with all three of the so-called offices of Christ, priest, king, prophet. Priest. Well, you know that Jesus is the new priest, He's the one who mediates for us to the Father. He's the, the one who offered himself as the full and final sacrifice for our sins. Did you notice, though, in verse, verse 9, how Jesus was lifted up in a cloud? This is not the first time that a cloud has ascended to heaven. At the climax of the sacrifices of the old covenant, part or all of the animal would be burned and would ascend to God in a cloud. In fact, one of the offerings is actually called the ascension, literally, just the ascension, not even ascension offering, just it's the ascension, it's the thing that ascends. You basically burn the entire animal, minus the guts and the nasty bits, and the whole thing goes up to God in a cloud, and that's when you know the sacrifice is completed. So how do you know that the sacrifice of Christ has been completed? Well, in one sense, because he said, it's finished. But he said that as he died. He's still not been lifted up to heaven. The ascension is actually part of his atoning work as our priest and our sacrifice. It's the completion of his self-offering. It's kingly, well, obviously, um, because are you going to restore the kingdom? And the answer is yes, Daniel 7 and so on. Of course, you might now be thinking, well, how can he be priest and king at the same time? Because Kings have to come from Judah, priests have to come from Levi, that's a bit of a pickle, you can't be from two tribes. Well, you can if you're a Melchizedekian priest, Hebrews 7, Psalm 110. That is to say, you're the kind of priest, it doesn't matter which tribe you come from, because what matters is that you have the power of an indestructible life. So you're able to be a priest, like the great Melchizedek was, who's king of Salem and priest of God Most High in Genesis 14. That's the pattern of Jesus' priesthood. He's a king ruling from the priestly kingly throne there's one throne and he's not only sitting on the throne you notice there's one or two moments in the book of acts when jesus is standing when when's the one really famous moment when um, somebody says 
I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He's gone up from his throne. What's he doing? Obvious. He's doing what people who stand in the throne room do. The ones who stand before the living God are prophets. That, the verb, amad, to stand, is frequently used in the Old Testament. The one who stands before the Lord is a prophet. And so Jesus is now the, the speaker, the prophet, as well as the priest and the king. He's standing in the throne room, and while Peter is declaring the wonders of God and the history of Israel and denouncing the Pharisees, it's actually Jesus who's speaking, which is why the Pharisees are so enraged, because he gets to the end of his speech and he says, I see Jesus standing. And they're like, are you, are you claiming that Jesus is the one speaking these prophetic words? And Stephen's like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they don't have that conversation, but that's, that's part of what they understood. Jesus was probably also standing because he's a judge about to pronounce sentence, which, of course, is why they picked up stones to stone him, because you can't have somebody going around daring to speak in the name of Jesus, the king enthroned in heaven. Well, actually, you can. That's exactly what the entire church is given the task of doing since Pentecost. The spirit is poured out upon the church, and what did they do? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own language so that we can't understand it. No, in our own tongues. So priest, king, prophet, Jesus is renewing and transforming all these offices and exercising them from heaven which has implications, secondly, this is the second like, detail I want to just explore before we jump on to the next point, which will be shorter, I promise. It has implications for what is sometimes called political theology. And we're going to run into this a number of times in the book of Acts because it won't have escaped your notice that there are moments when the disciples who are preaching about Jesus, now we're just going about preaching Jesus and the resurrection, they run headlong into the civil authorities or the religious leaders of the first century. And so Acts actually is um, one of the uh, most important sources in Scripture for understanding the relationship between the body of Christ, those who are united to the priest, king, prophet, who rule and mediate to the world and speak to the world, king, priest, prophet, and the civil authorities. And there, over the years, there have been some who have suggested that the whole purpose of Acts, the whole purpose of the book, is to demonstrate that Christianity really poses no threat to the secular authorities. So what, the way this comes from, uh, this is wrong, by the way, okay? <laughs> but the, where it comes from is that, you know, the concern, so Jesus is crucified for sedition, strictly speaking, you know, king of the Jews, or he said he was king of the Jews. No, just write king of the Jews. And that's what's over his head. And so, so in the early church, some, some claim, the church is really nervous and Luke is really nervous that the secular authorities are going to perceive that, that the church is a threat to civil rule and so the book of Acts is written to try and explain that actually Christianity is sort of the fulfillment of Judaism and the Roman Empire ought to allow Christianity because hey you allow Judaism that's a that's a legal religion so you ought to allow Christianity as well that's what the book of Acts is about well hmm. so is the gospel a threat to the civil powers? Well, I want to say yes. And there's a couple of guys here nodding. It's like, come on, give it to us, Pastor. Well, I want to say yes and no. Right? No in this sense. When Paul gets into trouble in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Ephesus, Jerusalem, every single time Luke takes pains to point out, look, it wasn't Paul who stirred this stuff up. Yeah? We're not violent revolutionaries. You don't have to be afraid of us. We're not the ones who go around killing babies, <clears throat> for example. If 
You don't need to fear that we are stirring up a rebellion. It is true that that is one of the things that Luke wants to highlight. And so you get to the end of uh, Luke's gospel, uh, end of Acts, and in his trial before Agrippa and Festus in chapter 26, like Agrippa's like, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. We could have set him free if he hadn't asked to go to Rome to meet Caesar. And Paul's like, yeah, I'd really like to meet Caesar. I've got something to tell him about Jesus. There's another king, you see. But Agrippa's like, he hasn't done anything wrong. Just like Luke records in his gospel that Jesus was innocent, but Pilate was a coward, so they had him crucified anyway. So Jesus actually isn't a threat in that sense, but boy, Jesus is a threat to any civil ruler who refuses to bow before him. You don't get off the responsibility of having to bow the knee to Jesus just because you're a magistrate or a king or an emperor or something. Fathers as fathers need to bow before Jesus Christ. Husbands, as husbands, need to bow before Jesus Christ. Children, as children, need to bow before Jesus Christ. Same with employers, same with masters, same with anybody who has any relationship with anybody else, which is everybody. And kings and emperors, when they go to work to do their job, are required by Jesus to do it in a way that honours him. It's not like, yeah, well, you, I, I realise that you're in charge of Rome so you can do what you like. No. And so Jesus is a threat to anybody who resists that call. There's that fascinating conversation, isn't there? When, um, when uh, it's talking to uh, Agrippa again. And King Agrippa, is, he has a really kind of interesting conversation with Paul the Apostle later in, in Acts 26. And Paul, Paul is sort of explaining that everybody needs to repent and bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And, and he turns to Agrippa and he says, come on, come on, O king. You believe the prophets. I know that you believe the prophets. Why won't you repent? And Agrippa says, you, you want me to become a Christian, like just like that? And Paul says, yes. It's like, obviously I do. I would that everybody would become as I am, apart from these chains. That's what he says. And Agrippa's like, we could have said this. This guy isn't doing anything wrong. It's kind of challenging to hear. So Jesus, he's not opposed to secular authority. He's not opposed to civil authority. He's opposed to ungodly civil authority. Like he's opposed to ungodly every kind of authority. Every knee will bow, even the important ones, or the ones who think that they're important. So that's also helpful because, just, just very briefly, we'll move on to the final thing I want to say. Some people have suggested that verse six and the aftermath you know are you going to restore the kingdom to israel and jesus says well no not really the holy spirit will come upon you some people are wanting to say yes because the gospel is spiritual verse eight not political israel verse six it's like no distinguish it's not about national israel but it's about politics just like it's about everything else so jesus is enthroned as the king of all nations which is going to include the people who are in charge of those nations, under him. Secondly, and more briefly, the church is therefore called to witness to all nations. Let's take a closer look at verse 8, the central uh, verse in this text. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You're getting sick of this verse, aren't you? No, you're not. You're like, I'm, getting, I'm memorizing it. It's like Bible memory verse time. This is a good verse to memorize. When the Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, come to that word in a second, in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, you've already noticed the background to that phrase, the end of the earth in Psalm 2. 
Ask of me, Jesus says to the king, and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the end of the earth your possession. You will possess the end of the earth. Do you think Jesus is sitting up in heaven thinking, yeah, I don't really want to ask that prayer. That'd be a bit much. No. His father has told him what to pray. He is now receiving the end of the earth as his possession. Gradually, gradually, because last week, not at this time, but a thousand generations at least, but he's now receiving. Psalm 72 the kingdom will go from sea to sea and from the river Euphrates to the end of the earth. So there's that background in the Psalms. The great kings of Israel on whose kingship Jesus' kingship is modelled and is greater than, they deploy this phrase, end of the earth, right at the moment when they become king, just to make it clear what kingship is about. But there's one other place which highlights our responsibility in this in a new way. And I want to turn you to that. Um, It's in Isaiah um, 49. Some of you will recognize this quotation. The the exact phrase, end of the earth, singular, is found in Isaiah 49, verse 6. Now, a bit of background here. This is the the second of the so-called servant songs in Isaiah, where the Lord identifies this figure who's sort of... um, his identity flits back and forth. Sometimes you think it's the prophet. Sometimes you think it must be the people of Israel. Sometimes you think it must be somebody else. But the the servant is the one who's going to do the Lord's work for him. And just look with me what he says about what the servant's going to do. Like Isaiah 49, uh, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. So the servant, who's the prophet at this point, speaking, saying, everybody, Peru, Nigeria, listen, Britain, Texas, the Lord called me to speak to you. Verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword because the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. He said to me, verse 3, you are my servant. And then it starts to become, it's not just the prophet, it's Israel in whom I will be glorified. And then verse 4, he gets all disappointed. But then verse verse 5 and 6 are where we, we see the rhetorical posture to which the servant is called to pay attention. Now the Lord says, he who formed me in his womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. The prophet is speaking about himself in the first instance. He formed me as a servant to to bring back Jacob. Isaiah's job is bring back Israel. Bring back the old covenant people of God. Bring them back to the Lord. And in verse 6, drops like a ton of bricks He says, it's too light a thing, too small a thing, too little a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. That's not ambitious enough. That's easy and too small, too light, too insignificant. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Quote in Acts 8. And so you're thinking... Hold on, so the servant is Isaiah, the servant is Israel. We know the servant is Jesus because the servant songs are taken on Jesus, uh, are attributed uh, to Jesus and, and they're connected with him in the New Testament epistles. What's really um, it blows your mind when you get later in the book of Acts, we'll come to this in Acts 13, when Paul and Barnabas are preaching and they pick up these same words from Acts, from um, Isaiah 49, when they've been thrown out of the synagogue in Antioch. They get thrown out, and and he says, they say, fine. In that case, we'll go to the nations. And they quote Isaiah 49, verse 6. 
I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So as the representatives of the church, the apostles take these words upon themselves. So it's our job to do the thing that fulfills the Lord's ambition. It's too small a thing to send you guys out, well, just to be among yourselves and just have a nice time. That's too, that's too lacking in ambition. That's not expansive enough. I've made you as a light for the nations that you'd bring the message of hope to the end of the earth. Which, of course, is connected with this idea of being witnesses. I mentioned this earlier. You will be my witnesses. It's a very interesting um, Greek word group that develops through the book of Acts and actually elsewhere in Scripture. Sometimes a witness just means somebody who's seen something. Like, you need two witnesses, especially in a legal context. Two witnesses. Probably why you've got two men here in verses 10 and 11. Two men, like Deuteronomy 17, is it? To, to be testify, to have a valid testimony in a legal case. But sometimes in the book of Acts, what happens is the word witness means somebody who testifies in a context of hardship. It means somebody who testifies in a context of danger, even danger of death. So when, when the Lord speaks to Paul in Acts 23, and says, just as you've testified about me in Jerusalem... You must also witness, testify, same word, in Rome. How do you testify in Jerusalem? Well, it wasn't, you know, just sit in a coffee shop and people come and it's all very friendly. Hostile, aggressive opposition is what he encountered. And he's a witness. So to be a witness, as we conclude, to be a witness entails testifying to Christ in a context where it will be costly. I doubt very much actually, that it will cost us what it cost them. I think it's quite unlikely that any of us will be thrown in prison. It's not impossible, actually, but, it, but it's quite unlikely. Mercifully, it's quite unlikely if we stay in this country that anybody will be killed or violently attacked for their faith, although, again, it's not unheard of for people to be attacked physically. What's more likely, just to return to where we began, is that the cost of our being faithful to the call of Christ to look outward will be felt in other ways. I, some of you guys who are from Granbury, I like you. Not some of you. All of you guys. Some of you guys, comma, who are from Granbury, comma, you see what I'm trying to say? You're my friends. I, I'm going to miss you. I, I, I don't want to send some of my friends away sending away anyway but that some, some of us it will be quite a wrench actually if you've been at the church here for 5, 10, 12 years always worshipped in the same congregation with the same group of people and now you're going to see less of them because we're obeying the call of the Lord Jesus Christ to look outward and it's Granbury for goodness sake it's not like it's Mogadishu it's not 7,000 miles away and nobody's going to die but we will see less of them it will be chaos. I mean, it will be hard work. Anybody who thinks church planting ever goes according to plan, I better just try and, well, you'll soon discover that it never does. You know, you can imagine the apostles, they, they're coming round to this in, in Acts chapter 1. It's like, Jesus, um, can, can we just make sure that we at least allow the conversion rate to slow down to a level that we can keep up with administratively? Jesus is like, yeah, okay, how about 3,000 in one day? Um, okay, yeah, we, we could handle that. We'll need some more deacons. Oh, did I just mention deacons? In other words, it's going to be hard work. That's actually the form that the trial is most likely to take, at least initially. It'll be tough. 
It'll be exciting. It'll be hard work. It'll be wonderful for us. And by, by, by God's grace, we will be obeying what Jesus requires of us as those filled with his spirit to witness to the nations. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we thank you for entrusting this privilege to us that you've called us, even us, as members of Christ's body to be your servants, it being too small a thing that we should just stay put because you want your name to be known and magnified and glorified everywhere. We pray that you would be preparing the hearts of many, many people who do not yet know Christ or whose walk with him is anemic and inconsistent and thin. Prepare us and prepare them to meet us, we pray. And as we do so, would you give us that grace we will need to draw them to faith in Christ, that same faith with which you've blessed us. We pray particularly for people in Granbury who are already thinking about witnessing and living there. But for all of us, Father, may we be faithful witnesses to the end of the earth. In Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.